Hey, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Monday, what was the Mark series typically, but today we're taking a slight detour. I was going to do eschatology prophecy stuff. I'll explain in a minute why we're not doing that today. And instead, I'm going to be talking about John chapter 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I think this passage is definitely one of my favorite passages in the Bible um, for just the simple beauty of it. Like, not because of some something you have to study super deeply to understand. It's just so wonderful and beautiful as is. And so I decided to teach this uh, because I'd like you to know the meaning behind the washing of the feet. And we'll also ask, answer the question, like, are we supposed to be washing each other's feet regularly today in the body of Christ? Is that something we're supposed to do? Jesus told us to do it. Is that what he meant? We'll talk about that as well. But more than anything, it's just the heart of it, that the whole picture of Christ and what he's doing is beautiful. But let me just start by explaining real quick now why we're not doing the eschatology stuff I promised you was coming. Well, it's still coming. I'll keep my promise. But it's not coming today. And the, the reason is this. So we're in Mark 13. And I've taught through the passage in Mark 13, which are not, at least I'm very convinced, are not signs of Christ's coming. They're not signs of the end, the earthquakes and famines and even things like the pandemic. That those are not signs, right? Because it's a matter of degree. When those are signs later in Revelation, they're just ex so extreme. You could, nobody would have to tell you it's way beyond anything we've seen in, in, our, in our lifetimes. So the, so the current ones are not signs. Um, but then I got to the abomination of desolation, right? That amazing and very interesting and very uh, complicated and debated issue. And I thought to myself, here's the problem. Within the body of Christ, there are all these different people that have these different views about eschatology. There's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. And amongst those people, they have different views of, of the book of Revelation. So they have like an idealist view or a preterist view, which would be a historical preterist or partial preterist view. Um, or they have a futurist view, which is the view I have. And so many of you have only ever been exposed to one view. And if there's any area of my theology that is that I'm most likely to get wrong... <laughs> It's going to be eschatology about the future second coming of Christ and, and not just the second coming. We all kind of agree on that. It's really the stuff that happens between now and the second coming of Jesus. Like that's the stuff where a lot of us have these different sort of schools of thought. So here's what I thought. Instead of doing the abomination of desolation, and I teach through this as a premillennial person, as someone who believes a futurist view of revelation, how about instead I back up and just do a, a survey first of different Christian views of eschatology, where I'm not trying to promote one view or another, I'm just surveying them. And that's what I have been planning on doing. That's what I've been studying for this week, although it has been a complicated week. We had some uh, some medical things going on with my, uh, with my mom, so I was taking care of her and everything got delayed. And so I was only able to do like 40 hours of work this week. It was not enough to prepare. So I'm going to do that next week. Next week is going to be a survey of just what is the pre-mill perspective? What's the on-mill perspective, the, the post-mill? And I'm going to try to do it in a very charitable fashion where I'm not trying to convince you to be pre-millennial. I'm just trying to sort of give you a, a, an understanding of the scope, some of the pros and cons. I'll even share with you some of the things that are hard for pre-millennialists like myself. Some areas where it's challenging, like how do you explain that? And um, yeah, that'll be next week that I'm planning on covering that. And then we'll get back into the abomination of desolation, the rest of the of the gospel of Mark chapter 13, and we'll plow through. Today is just a side study, all that long <laughs> rabbit trail to say, I just decided to teach something that was easy, that I've studied before, that I love and is simple, and it's John 13. And we're going to read through the passage right now. Um, again, it's one of my favorite Bible passages. And I just want to read straight through it with you. And I want you to, to be... Um, as you're doing this, I like to give you some prompts as we're reading. And one of the things I'd encourage you to do is, is ask yourself what it means. Like, 
what's the meaning behind what Jesus is doing? And just at least notice, not just he washes their feet, but notice all the steps he takes along the way. Notice those things. And notice what he says to Peter as well. Interesting stuff. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my, my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right, that's that's the section we're going to be covering today, and um, I think it's I think it's beautiful. I, I think we can look at what Jesus says to Peter, and he says, like, you don't know what I'm doing right now, but afterwards you'll understand. This is this is like a hint that there's a deeper meaning behind Jesus washing the disciples' feet, that there's something significant happening here. It's it's a picture of Christ's overall ministry to to us, and then his calling on us to follow him. And I think that the specific details of him taking off his cloak and putting up a towel and tying it on himself and washing their feet and then wiping it with the towel that he's wearing, that's significant. And then afterwards, he puts on his clothes again and he sits back down in his place. And it's just all totally a picture of the entire ministry of Christ. We'll get into the details. Really exciting, beautiful, wonderful passage. But let's do it verse by verse, which is the best way to study the Bible. And here we are, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he knows his hour has come. And so this is this is the idea that his time of crucifixion has come. Now, speaking of side note of, of prophetic statements about like no, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. This this doesn't mean they don't know the calendar day or the hour of day. It, it just is saying they don't know the time. They're using the term hour frequently as like a just a general time indicator. Like now is the time, you know, this is the hour. That's 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 what it means. He knows that his hour had come or the time for his crucifixion was coming. In fact, from John 13 on, the rest of the Gospel of John is um, is basically within 24 hours of the crucifixion or, or after the crucifixion, you know, like when you get the resurrection and the appearances. So really a large part of John, John's Gospel is the, the last day of Christ and then the days after the last day of before his crucifixion and then the days afterward when he, uh, when he rises and then is... Um, appearing 
And it says, his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the, to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the, the hour, notice this, the hour that's coming, and this sets the stage for what is going to happen next. Jesus has come from the father, right? He's going to go back to the father and he's taken on this human form and he's serving us. He's going to die on the cross for our sins. He will then, you know, he will rise from the dead and then he will go up to heaven. He'll go back to the father. And this is all pictured in the washing of the feet. Verse two, during supper, oh, like side note, and it shouldn't be a side note. It is a big deal. John just randomly throws in that Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Like this is the kind of thing that most of us probably wouldn't put in the Bible. Like if we were writing it now, I mean, don't get weird about this. Like you're not writing the Bible and, and the, the writing of the scripture wasn't like by man's instigation. It was through the leading of the spirit. My point here is that we would talk about what Jesus did and we would just not stop and pause and mention how much he loves us. Like he loved us so much. And as John's writing this, he's, he, he just, he's thinking back about Christ going and washing the feet. He's thinking about Jesus going to the cross for us. And he just writes, he loved us to the end. And when you, when he says that, it's like to the end, it meant the end of his own life to the very end, to the highest possible cost to redeem us and to save us. He loved us that much. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. So it's just this incredible love. This is the kind of thing that a lot of people would feel like is cliche. You know, God loves you so much. Could feel like a cliche. And my encouragement to you is this. Like if you, like Christianity doesn't have cliches. There are no cliches in Christianity. There are just wonderful truths that people say with empty hearts. And when you say things that are beautiful and wonderful with an empty heart, it does sound like a cliche. It feels like a cliche. It's not a cliche. It's just that you don't get it. So when you say these words, Christian listening, when you say these words, God loves me, is that like this overwhelming, wonderful truth? He loves me. Or is it like something you take for granted? Yeah, he loves me. And I, I would encourage you this, that you've got to be in the place at all times where there are no cliches. There are just beautiful truths in Christianity. And if you're you're part of the world, you don't know Christ, then my encouragement to you is to realize that this is like, you're probably used to people trying to pitch to you things that do feel like cliches and feel empty. And you're wondering where the heart of it really is. And I'm just saying like, go to the gospels, read the gospels, see the heart of it, find out the truth behind the cliche, behind the thing that feels like a cliche and see the goodness of Christ. All right. Verse two says during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of, of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God, come from God, and was going back to God. This is so cool because this is this is what's pictured in him washing their feet. Right? Spoiler. Coming from God, doing this task, and then going back to God. Beautiful. Rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Notice the things he does. He, he rises from supper. He's in a seated, reclined position where he's enjoying things. He lays aside his outer garments. The next step is he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. Right? He wasn't uh, completely in like, his outer garments, right? But he takes a towel and ties it around his waist. This is like a servant's position. Then he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them specifically with the towel that he's wearing. So that has this, that has uh, draws a picture for us that gives us details about what Jesus is doing. Let's talk about the significance of these different elements. 
Um, so yeah, we know he's washing the disciples' feet. What a lot of you already know is this is like the task of a servant. This is like the job of the lowly, the, the lower servant of the household, the one who washes the disciples' feet or, or the people's feet. Um, it was not uncommon when you entered into somebody's house and they're your host that if they're well off enough to have a servant that the, the lowest of their servants does wash your feet. It wasn't culturally weird. Like if I walked into your house today, living where I live and the culture I live in, and you were like, take your shoes off. Let, um, my, my servant's going to wash your feet. Like that would be very strange. <laughs> I would be like, what's going on here? Um, but it was normal for them. This was not uncommon for them. So there was nothing shocking about the washing of feet. What was shocking was the person doing the washing. Jesus is doing the servant's job, the lowliest servant's job, a job that in their culture tends to mean that you are of low status. You are of lesser status. This is... Um, John taps into this, John the Baptist, when he says of Christ, he's not worthy to loosen his sandals. I think John is probably tapping into the same thing. A visitor comes to the house and takes off, the, you know, the servant takes off the sandals of this person and washes their feet. He's like, I'm not worthy to do the lowest servant's job. John says this of Jesus. He's not worthy to take the sandals off Jesus. Yet Jesus does that task and the foot washing for his disciples. So it's understandable when Peter's like, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. But when we look at it in a Christian perspective, we go, this is God Almighty coming and serving me in the basest of ways. This is a picture of Christ's ministry. He comes as a servant. It's an incredible act of love. Then he calls us to follow alongside. There is no task too low for a Christian to perform. There just isn't a task too low for Christians to perform. Partly because we see the value of other people. So serving them is a glorious thing. He who wants to be great, let him be the servant of all. And also because we see our Savior modeling servant, true servanthood, right? True servanthood um, in, in ways that we rarely see it in the real world. Now, what he does is very specific. He gets up from the, from the for, he's reclined at meal. So he's like in a nice, happy place. <laughs> he gets up, he takes off his outer garments. And I think that this is a picture of him laying aside his glory. Remember his outer garment was like a, um, there's some other el elements of, What's the term I should look for here uh, of typology that are going on here? The outer garment Jesus had, scripture tells us, was like woven in one piece. So it was it was a nice single piece item. The only real connection we have in that phrase woven in one piece with the Old Testament is the high priests. The priests would wear these garments that were woven in one piece, you know, from top to bottom, not not multiple pieces of cloth that were just sewn together. And that's pretty interesting because it connects Jesus to the priests. Now, there were times when the priest was to take off once a year to take off his outer garments and he was going to go in and it was when, catch this, it was on the day of atonement when the priest was to take, the high priest, take off his outer garments and he was going to go into the Holy of Holies and he was there to bear the iniquity and make atonement for the people of Israel. He was to, to like wear their sin on himself. So he takes off this outer garment so that he could be the, the, the lowly carrier of sin as he goes in and offers one man atonement for all the people. Jesus, when he takes off his outer garment, he's doing a picture of his entire ministry. He is God Almighty, right? He is the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then he became flesh and dwelt among us, right? He laid aside his glory, scripture tells us. So he sets aside that glory. He comes lowly as a servant. This is, this is a striking thing. The next thing he does is he takes this, um, this towel. So he takes off the glory, Right. And picturing the high priest, but also just God becoming man. And then he wears a towel. So he comes not as a conquering king. Right. Like when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, a, a beast of burden, as opposed to in Revelation when he's seen on a white horse, because now he's coming as victor, as, as Lord. Here he's coming as a servant. So he wears this towel. He ties a, a cloth around himself. 
that's meant to be uh, a preparation for service and an outward sign that he's here to serve. He's here to minister to others. It's also interesting, side note, that when Jesus was on the cross, he had been stripped of his clothes. Again, just like the high priest, when he was going to bear the sin of the people, he was stripped of his clothes. Christ on the cross, stripped and bearing our sin. So Jesus is a servant. He's actually doing menial labor. He's not just a servant in like theory. He's actually saying, I'm just going to do really menial labor to prove my servanthood uh, character to you and ask you to follow me in it. Then he pours the water into a basin. And then he takes this basin of water and he goes from disciple to disciple. He's got, he's got 12 guys here and he washes their feet. He washes their feet. Now, this, this seems to be obvious, right? Like it's the idea of cleansing. Jesus is cleansing us of, of our worldliness. He's cleansing us of our sin as you walk around the world and gather up the, collect the, the, the dirt of the world upon yourself. And he comes and he washes that. He washes that. But what I think is really interesting is that he, what he does with it, let me take us to the text again. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is not just washing their feet with the water. It's all water in a bowl. So that water was going to get increasingly dirty as he went from disciple to disciple. Twelve pairs of feet, 24 dirty feet he's got to wash with this one bowl of water. So it's going to get dirtier and dirtier, which means that the towel that he's wiping them with is the final thing that's actually wiping the dirt off of them. This towel is getting dirtier and dirtier. And as Jesus goes from disciple to disciple, their feet become clean and he becomes more soiled. The next person's feet become clean and Jesus becomes more dirty. The next person's feet becomes clean and Jesus' towel is getting not only wet, but dirty. This is happening 12 times in a row. I wonder how long it took. I wonder what they were thinking while it was going on. I know what I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking what 2 Corinthians says that, uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Christ, he became sin. We don't want to stretch that 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 terminology too far, right? But it's that he became, like he's, he's the high priest bearing our iniquity, right? On the cross. He took our sin upon himself. Our cleanness is because of the filth that he took upon himself. And so the, the washing of the feet is a picture of the entire ministry of Christ, of forgiving us powerful 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 and then after he's done doing this he takes his garments back right he he takes that towel and he sets it aside he doesn't keep wearing the towel the filth that he wiped off of everyone else he doesn't keep wearing that all night he takes it and he sets it aside he takes his garment back which is a picture of him getting his glory back receiving his glory back as 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 the word who was god right and jesus in john 17 talks about this glorify me with the glory i had with you before the world was so jesus takes his glory back and now where's the towel? It's just not even talked about again because all that filth is taken care of. So Jesus transfers our sin to himself. He dies for our sin as if he was sin. But then he rises from the dead clean. He's cleansed us and remained clean himself. And then this is a picture of ultimate of, of our salvation. Um, he takes his garments back. He ascends and is glorified. And now every knee is going to bow to him. But the next, and that to me, that's like the big amazing, beautiful, and simple thing of this passage. It's just a picture of what Jesus did for us. Verse six, this is where Peter pushes back. It says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And now you might think Peter's being pompous here. Um, and maybe there's an element of pride going on, or, or, or at least there is going to be an element of arrogance in a second when Jesus tells him, you don't know what I'm doing. And Peter still doesn't listen. But there's, there's another part of this, which is just like, 
he, Jesus is too great. Jesus is too wonderful to do that to me. He's too awesome to do that to me. And, and this is appropriate. This is proper that we would feel this sense of like, um, not you, you, you doing that for me, you doing that for me. Like you're so great. You're so wonderful. And we just realize that it's a love that has overcome all of that. Uh, but Jesus answers and, and tells him what I'm doing. You do not understand now, but afterward, later on, you'll get it. Later on, you'll get it. And here Peter stands as like the guy who's going to represent misunderstanding what Jesus is doing so that we won't misunderstand it, right? Like he'll get it wrong so Jesus can correct him so we can get it right. But I think there's an application here that goes really deep into our lives. There are times when you're going through things where you're kind of like Peter going like, this isn't right. Like what's happening in my life right now just doesn't make any sense. And perhaps God would say to you like, what I'm doing, you don't understand right now. But afterward, you'll understand it. Like later on, maybe it's in eternity, you'll understand some of the suffering that's going on in your life or the hardship. Later, you'll get it. Later, you'll understand. And this is where like as a pastor and I and I talk to people or counsel them and they tell me about hardship they have going on and they often are looking for help. One of the things that can subtly be implied as they talk about the issues they're going through is that they want someone to explain to them why it's happening. Like just, I want to know why this is happening. And pastors can sometimes fall into the trap, or I should say Christians can sometimes fall into the trap of trying to guess at the reason why hardship is coming upon somebody. And I think that this is um, a dangerous thing to do. I think that we're sort of we're sort of doing heart surgery on people recklessly when we do that. And I'm much more comfortable saying, I don't understand. I know I'll understand later. I know you'll understand later. I don't understand it now. I'm not going to try to explain it. I'm just going to suggest, like Jesus did to Peter, that you just trust. So Jesus is kind of appealing to Peter's faith here. Peter, you don't know what I'm doing, but if you really respect me as Lord, then you'll just let me do it and you'll let you'll you'll get it later. Trust me. Just trust me. Peter doesn't tolerate that because Peter has a hard time with things he can't comprehend. When God's doing something he doesn't understand, he doesn't like it, right? When when Jesus says I'm going to be crucified. He's like, no way, no way. That'll never happen. When Jesus is there and he's like, look, I'm being betrayed. Jesus, Peter pulls the sword out and he's chopping off the high priest's servant's ear. This is, this is us going, I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. As long as I understand where it is you're leading me, I will trust you no matter what, Lord. As long as I understand what's happening in my life and what's going on. And Peter kind of stands at the moment as that. Now, later when you read his, his, his letters, first and second Peter, you realize he's totally changed. He's totally changed. When he goes through hardship and suffering, he's like, oh, you're being refined. The genuineness of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes. And, and he's a different man. Uh, so this is, this is him before he learned. <laughs> and maybe, you're, maybe you haven't learned yet and you're on your way. So Peter responds uh, pretty drastically. He says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Never, never. You will never wash my feet. Um, which is interesting because it's, it's here's, here's Peter. You're too high and lofty to wash my feet. You're the Lord. You're in charge. So you can't serve me. So you're in charge. So I'll dictate what you can and can't do. But you'll never wash my feet. So the irony is that Peter, in a weird, like, reversal of understanding, he is thinking that God's lordship entails Peter forbidding the Lord from doing something he wants to do, which is just a very strange moment. Um, so he says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And now we see something nice about Peter. He is not, he, he might be like strong-willed in a sense, but he's not exactly stubborn because he immediately changes his tune and goes, oh, 
well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Okay. If, if, if this is, if you're saying I can't even know you relationally, if I'm not even part of, 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 I look what he says, no share with me. You're not part of what I'm, I'm about. Then, then wash, wash my whole body or at least his feet, his hands and his head. He's asking for a bigger, a greater washing. Okay. I want, I want to be part. Okay, fine. Fine, I'll be part. And he just kind of gives up the fight against Jesus washing him very quickly, which is interesting. Um, this is an admirable quality of Peter. He had bad theology, but he was able to get it corrected very quickly, although he still didn't quite understand. And so Jesus, Peter here getting it wrong, then gives an explanation of the washing of the feet to help us understand what it doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean, in this case, Here's the thing you have to go through for to be saved. It's something slightly different. So Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, you're not all clean. Um, so that was Judas. Obviously, Judas was the one who would betray him. But what is this thing? Okay, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Okay, well, okay, there's there's different words for washing in the Greek that we um, don't maybe carry the same connotation in English. But the basic idea is this. You have already been bathed, Peter. There's something that bathed you already in your past. And so that has made you clean. But you still need to have a foot washing, whatever this means, whatever this represents. You need to have this experience. It's important. But it's not the thing that makes you clean initially. And so... Um, there's a lot of plenty of debate. I'm not going to get into a massive theological discussion on it. But I want to say this. I do think we know what bathed him. And some would say, well, that was um, uh, that was baptism. It was baptism that bathed him. And the foot washing is like a secondary thing. Um, I actually think what bathed him here in the context of John, John 15, 3, he says, already you are clean. That's the same terminology he said to Peter. And he explains why. Because of the word that I've spoken to you. So they were cleansed or made clean by simply believing what Jesus had been saying. They trusted in Christ. And so they were cleansed. So they were clean. So long story short, the, the bathing was just believing the word, believing the word and then being washed. Now, baptism represents that and it's important and we all should be baptized. Everybody should be baptized. It's very important. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is talking about, I don't think, in relation to the foot washing. So what is he talking about then in John 13? Why does he, why do I have to have my foot washed? What is that? I think it has to do perhaps with the idea that um, I need to continually come to Jesus and recognize that he's the one who not only saves me, but he's the one who continually cleanses me as I gather sin in my life, even as a Christian. So I'm walking through the world. I'm bathed, but I walk through the world, just my feet getting dirty. So it's like, here's a saved person who has sin issues that we gather in our lives on a regular basis. And so we must regularly come to Christ and be like, you're still serving me. You're still washing me. You're still cleansing me. Now I'm clean because I've just trusted in faith, but I must relationally come to you on a regular basis because this is very much about an ongoing healthy walk with God. This is like when you tell a Christian, how's your walk with God? You're like, how's your walk with God? And they realize... You don't mean, are you saved? What you mean is, how's the health of your walk with God? Is there sin that you're harboring in your heart? Are you distanced in your prayer? Are you neglecting the the devotional life with God or the, the heaven-focused purpose of a life of living this world, living in this world for his kingdom? Those are the kinds of questions that we're talking about there. So I think that the application here is that we need to come regularly to Christ for that foot washing Right where we realize Jesus, he's Lord, but he's still serving me in the sense of I am daily 
in need of his cleansing in my life all the time, all the time. And the, the counsel here I'd give for us as Christians, very practical counsel, is to keep short accounts with God. That term short accounts, it's like a banking term where when you when you say buy something on a credit card, you're buying it on an account, you're, you're getting credit, and then you pay it back immediately, that's keeping short accounts. Or you start doing finance charges and you pay it every month a finance charge and you keep owing money, owing money. That would be keeping long accounts. Now, the, the thing about keeping short accounts is God's the one who's actually paying it off. Our whole task here is just we come to him relationally after we've sinned and we're saying, look, I'm sorry, Lord. I repent of that. I refocus my heart and my life on Christ. One of the things that I think keeps Christians from doing this is feeling that we have to be worthy. That we, especially me as a young believer, I, I, had, I, I experienced this all the time where I would you know, feel like I'm up here in my walk with the Lord. I'm just like, I'm solid. I'm enjoying relationally. I'm enjoying God, enjoying Christ. I feel like I'm walking in, as far as I, I'm aware, I'm walking in a, in a righteous life. And then I commit a sin. And that sin brings shame and it causes me, not God, it causes me to distance myself from God. And then I get this feeling of like, well, what's the point? I may as well just sin. I'm kind of like already in that mode or something weird like this. This is me as a teenager. And and so then, you know, that the sin prolongs and the distance prolongs. And then finally, like I come to like a low point where I'm like, oh, Lord, I just want you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I wasn't as confident in God's grace as I should have been back then. I didn't understand that you could boldly come to the throne of grace, as Hebrews tells us, boldly come to find that grace, to find that mercy that you need. So then I would get back up to the top. Now I'm doing good. Now I'm doing solid. But then it was like one, one real blatant sin that I was aware of would just trigger this episode of shame and distancing and feeling like, what's the point? And all this was terribly unhealthy. What I should have done was just come straight to the Lord at that first moment of sin. And this is the habit I try to conduct now. I heard an old story, and I don't know if it's true. I don't care if it's true. I think it's just a good illustration. Uh, and the old story was uh, some preacher, probably Charles Spurgeon, I think is how it went. And how he was walking across the street and he was seen uh, stopping in the middle of the street and pausing for a moment. And then he walked the rest of the way across the street. And, and a bystander saw him and was like, uh, you know, Pastor Spurgeon, uh, why, why did you stop in the middle of the street like that? And he said, well, I was walking. And, and again, I don't know if this is true. Don't care. <laughs> this is a great point, though. And, and according to the story, he says, as I was walking, it came to my awareness that something had come between me and God. That there was a sin that had come between me and God. And so I didn't want to take another step until I repented of that thing. And that to me is a beautiful attitude. Um, I don't want to become legalistic about not taking a physical step, but I do want to take the heart of that and apply it in my life and say, you know what? The minute you recognize that there's some ounce of rebellion, some measure of sin, you come to Christ for a washing, the cleansing, the daily cleansing, so to speak, that you, um, that you do that constantly, constantly. Keep your account short. We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. We just have to relationally come to him. That's the issue. Then in verse 12, we get the rest of the passage here. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. I love the way it's worded here. So he puts on it. So obviously he took the towel off. He puts on his outer garments. That's that glory. And then he, he takes his place. He resumes his place. So his place here seems to be a picture of him in heaven. And then he comes as a servant. And then he does the task of taking our sin upon himself, dying for us, discarding that sin, and then taking his glory back and sitting back down in his rightful place. This is, I think this is really neat. Um, 
I, it's beautiful. Um, if, if you're not blown away by this, then it's just because I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, so he, then he asks them, and this is part of the clue that there's more to it than washing feet. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant right here, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right, you know these things. You know you're supposed to be a servant, but do you do it? That's the question. Do you do it? And that is the application of washing each other's feet. Um, let me let me um, cover that in just a second. Should we be washing each other's feet today? But before I do that, I just want to take you to a parallel passage, which I think is parallel. Um, Philippians chapter 2. There's actually several passages like this in the Bible that talk about Jesus' sort of like journey from glory to to uh, servanthood and suffering and death back to glory this like sort of swooping thing it happens in the book of hebrews a lot where you get this sort of recounting of jesus doing this but here in philippians is probably one of the most well-known passages and i think if you parallel that if you just take this and superimpose it on top of jesus washing the disciples feet you'll see this neat thing so this is about jesus christ jesus who though he was in the form of god that's him sitting at the table with the with the glorious robe did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself. So he takes off that thing and he takes the form of a servant. Well, that's exactly what he looked like there in the house without that wonderful robe and wearing the servant's towel girded around him, tied around him. Being born in the likeness of men. You see, it's about the whole incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And that is him loving us to the end that John talks about in John 13. He's as he's washing, he's taking the sin of all of us. And in a sense, Christ was dirtier than any of them had been at, after this foot washing because he took the sin of not, or the dirt of not one man, but of all of them. And so we have Christ, he becomes sin. It's, it's this elevation. He, he took not one, not one person's sin, but all sin of all people of all time upon himself. So he becomes obedient to the point of death, even the death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and here's the after the foot washing, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now he's seated in, in the heavenly places. He's seated at the throne, the right hand of God. Um, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this whole picture of Christ, uh, his servanthood. And the next question is, are you supposed to wash feet today? Like am I in my church, should I have regular foot washing like ceremonies and events? Is this like supposed to be a... A typical thing that we do. And um, I'm going to answer that. I, I, I think the answer is no, but I want to be careful here. There's nothing wrong with churches that want to do foot washing. That is a nice thing. It's a wonderful thing. The only question I'm asking is if it is a necessary thing. And I'm going to give a few reasons why I would say it's not necessary. First off, Jesus washes our feet and it's highly, highly symbolic in John 13. It's very representative of him saving us, of him forgiving us, and him serving us. He then tells us, you ought to wash one another's feet, right? But in the context of all the symbolism, I think that that's what he's getting at. Do that. He even tells them, you don't even know what I'm doing right now. Later on, you'll get it, right? It, so it's not just about washing feet. It's about the symbolism, the meaning behind it. 
and I'm to do that to others as well. We also see, so in John 13, there's a reason to, to suggest that this is not a command for regular foot washing. But we also see it in the book of Acts that we have regular church events talked about. Acts talks about normal things the church does. Um, Acts 2.42, the breaking of bread, communion, fellowship, the continuing the apostles' doctrine, they're praying. These are the things that they're doing as a local church. Why isn't foot washing on there? Why? I mean, the breaking of bread is on there, right? There was a regular activity the church did, right? The communion and the meal. But foot washing is not there. In fact, nowhere in Acts do we see it. And and someone could say, Mike, that's an argument from silence. And you could say that, but here's the thing. Arguments from silence... Um, they become valid when you when you say, but I should expect to see it there. So if I was to tell you there's an elephant behind me right now, right? You not seeing an elephant is proof that I'm wrong. But, but that's not even from silence. It's just what you don't see. Yeah, but you would expect to see an elephant because I just told you one's behind me in this little space. And so you would expect to see it. Now, if I told you there was an invisible unicorn behind me, and you said, I don't see it, therefore it's not there, that would be an argument from silence because right? you, you wouldn't expect to see an invisible unicorn. You would look for some other verification of it, which there's no invisible unicorns behind me. Uh, open a can of worms there. But the, um, the nature of Acts is that we are seeing the early church and we do see like baptism and we see communion and we see fellowship and we see gatherings. We see all these regular things the church does in the book of Acts and we don't see anything about foot washing. The only mention that I know of about foot washing later on is when Paul writes about the wife of a deacon and that she should be in the pastoral epistles and that she should be known for washing the feet of the saints, of the people. And so the idea here, I think, is because the deacons are also required to be hospitable. I think in their culture, remind us, in their culture, it's normal to wash feet. It's not an abnormal thing, right? It's just a normal cultural thing. You wash each other's feet. And so... She washes the feet of the guests in the home as the deacon is probably bringing believers to his house to minister to them, to teach, to care for them, to uh, to, to host um, Bible studies, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there's, there's that sort of thing going on. Um, so I would say this, that there isn't, you can't make a strong case for foot washing in the text of scripture. It seems to me that it's optional and not required. Now, if you're at a wedding and they do foot washing and it's this beautiful and people understand it, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. If you're at a church and people understand it and you let them know, guys, this is how we represent loving and forgiving one another. And, and if I was to do it, I would probably do it like that. I would say what Jesus did when he washed our feet is not only serving us, it's forgiving us. And here in John, he's even talking more about not just about service, but about forgiveness. So as we wash each other's feet, what I want you to do is I want you to go up and every person whose foot you wash, if you wash someone's feet, you're telling them by washing their feet that you hold nothing against them, that you love them as your brother or sister in Christ, that you love them and you have nothing against them. So I think that could be like a beautiful way of doing um, ministry in the in the body, but it's not required. That's that's the thing I want to emphasize. It's not required. It's not required. Now, if churches are doing it because they think it's required, I think the Lord will honor that. I'm just saying I don't think it's required. So hopefully that made my position clear, at least my understanding. Jesus then goes on to suggest um, that we really need to forgive each other. Not only um, in John and all the Gospels and throughout the, the Scripture, forgiveness is, is massive. Forgiveness is huge. And so I just want to point that out. If there's anybody, you as a Christian, you're holding something against, you have a heart of unforgiveness, of bitterness, can I say you need to do major heart surgery before you do anything else? Like this is a really serious issue. Forgiving others is absolutely very significant. And God takes it so seriously that it's not just about your relationship with the person you're, you have bitterness towards. It's about your your relationship with God himself. 
He's like, you forgive them because I forgave you. So now it's about you and him. Very, very important that we do that. Then um, verse 16 and 17, I'll just read this again to us. Truly, truly, um, oh, actually, let me go to, I have two different translations in front of me. So that's the NASB. Truly, truly, the ESV puts it this way. Verse 16 and 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, check this out. When you when you refuse to love, serve, and forgive your fellow believers because you think you're better than that, and, and that's just to be honest, that's our attitude, right? Because we think we're better than that. You are implying you're greater than Jesus. If that's not a huge slap in the face to, the, to those who are unforgiving or too good to do things like, I'm not flipping burgers or I'm not working in that low position, I'm not doing such a small thing, you think you're greater than Jesus, who deliberately did the lowest job around just as an illustration of us serving one another. He says, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And that's the application for you is to do them. Um, right now, remind yourself that we were, we were to be different. The body of Christ is to be different than the world. The world is like ranks of authority and prestige. And in the body of Christ, it was meant to be flat. Like it was meant to be flat, not ranks of authority and prestige, just flat. Like James rebukes them because they're giving rich people better seats in the church. Like, no, because it's supposed to be flattened out. Like there isn't, we don't have these ranking things because we're all children of God. We're all elevated as both totally based and humble because we're, we're, we're sinners who deserve judgment, but also forgiven and given the Holy Spirit. And so we're all equal. So that... There are even leaders in the body of Christ. A pastor is a leader. Okay, he, he has some decision-making, he has some authority, but he's not better than. He's not higher than in that sense. We're all meant to be servants. And this is something Jesus kept hammering in, and it's something the church does. We get wrong because we start to treat the church like it's a corporate entity. And I've seen this over the years. Um, this has been my weak spot. I'm not very good at treating the church like a corporation. <laughs> I say weak spot because sometimes organizationally I get weak because I just I'm, I'm more about the organic side of it than the organizational side of it, and um, and I end up being weak in that area. But there are those who are really good at the organizational side, and they do tend to also turn things into ranks and elevations and special locations for the guest speakers to be at, and giving them special treatment and parking spaces and all these special things that we're going to make people look more special and different and all this kind of thing. And it just basically we start to lose this attitude of serving one another in love, serving one another in love. Um, and it just, it just happens over and over again, unless we very purposely heed what Christ has said. So there's my word for you guys. Today's study, slightly shorter than usual. And I will be with you on Friday for the Q&A. Um, other than that, I still have a video coming out every day. Um, from the interview I did with Elisa Childers talking about progressive Christianity stuff. So I would recommend you guys, if you're interested in that stuff, to check it out. Every every day there's a new video that might look like slightly similar thumbnails because maybe I'm just not doing them very good. <laughs> but, um, but they're all actually different. It's like 18 videos in a row. Other than that, I don't know what to tell you. We're, we're fastly approaching 200,000 subscribers on this YouTube channel. I don't know what to say. That's amazing. I'm blown away. I'm blown away by it. So I... I um, I don't know. Anything else to say? Let me just pray with you and we'll all go about our day. Lord God, we pray for your blessings upon our minds that we would clearly see, clearly see our chances to be low in front of others, to serve them, to really serve them, to love them the way that you loved us, to forgive where our bitterness 
especially in those long-term relationships, relationships that have lasted for years and years and how bitterness starts to get root. Help us see it, Lord, please. Help us to follow Christ. Help us to be truly surrendered to the example of Jesus in loving servanthood. I mean, Jesus knew the hearts of those whose feet he washed and they had all kinds of issues and he had such grace and kindness. May we imitate that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you all Friday.